We get to continue our family series this morning, and we look at technology, right? The family and technology. My question to begin here is, are you using your technology, or is your technology using you? Now to test if you have a healthy handle on technology, go ahead and take out your cell phone this morning. You can Go ahead, it's okay, take it out. And I dare you to turn it off. Okay? I dare you to do it. I double dog dare you to turn your phone off. Mine's still off, from, so I'm pretending to, but it's off. See, see what that does for you. Turn that off, and then you are off the grid. Right now, somebody just posted something to Facebook that you really want to see. But you can't because your phone's off. What if you get a text during this sermon from your boss? <clears throat> How many of you can keep your phone off this entire sermon? Oh, some people are like, yes, I can do it. How many of you will, forgetting, forgetting it's off, look at it several times to see if you have anything and be like, oh, yeah, my phone's off? A couple times in the comments, I was like, let me just check my, oh, my phone's off. Okay, I can't do anything. Are any of you starting to feel a little anxious inside? Are any of you experiencing what the world says today is FOMO, fear of missing out? My goal today is to remind us that the things that are most important in life, the things we should truly fear missing out on, are the same whether you are stuck in the Stone Age or you're on the bleeding edge of technology. Indeed, God's plan for humanity predates technology, and it's going to continue to unfold long after all the iPhone Xs are in the landfill. It comes down to this, what it means to be human. What does it even mean to be human? There's a life of flourishing and a life of health that God has designed for us. Only two people ever knew it completely or perfectly. And to understand that, you got to go back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were created and they enjoyed perfect love between them and God and love between one another that was perfect. Life was simpler then. No smartphones, no Snapchat, no electricity, no machines, and no FOMO. Right, Genesis 1.28 says this, And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So in the beginning, God created technology. Technology is rooted in this calling that Adam and Eve had, this calling to keep order in creation, to cultivate, to be in dominion over the creation. And so Adam begins classifying the animals. And from that day on, man starts to create language and figures out how to make fire and invents the wheel and farming and hunting and building. And all of this is technology. All of this is an attempt to carry out what God had called them to do into subduing the earth. So technology is not new, and it is a good thing. Think about all the wonderful things we have today, the medicines and, and things for life and for ministry that we have because of technology. It is a good thing. 
All of this that we have, all of this would only deepen our relationship between God and us and our love for one another if it were not for sin, because sin hijacks technology. Not only did sin make it more difficult to fulfill the calling, you know, Adam now has to work the ground with, there's thorns and there's thistles, and so it's more difficult to carry out what God had for him. But sin does even more than that. Sin takes technology and it twists it into a weapon that is turned back against God. Think about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, isn't that a moment where mankind in his technological advance is now rebelling against his creator? Look how smart man is. Look how competent man is. Look how technologically advanced man is, and yet he's using it against God. Tony Rinke said this, Technology is not inherently evil, but it tends to become the platform of choice to express the fantasy of human autonomy. This morning we want to zero in on one particular kind of technology, and that is personal technology. I just got done saying there's a whole lot of good with technology, but let's talk about personal technology. It's kind of a recent phenomenon if you think about it. A couple examples, just think about music. There was a day, now this is before I'm pretty sure any of us were alive, okay? But there was a day in which in order to hear music, you had no radio, you had no phonograph, you had to go with other people into some place in the town and listen to a concert with actual instruments. And it was a community event, it was a social thing. You were with other people while you were enjoying this music. And then came the, uh, the, creation of, came the creation of the radio, first the phonograph and of course then later the radio. So everyone is around one family device, if you want to call it that, and they're listening to music. Still kind of a family affair. And then along the way came personal stereos. I remember being in middle school and getting a boombox. Man, was I psyched. I could have my music in my room. All right, so that was pretty awesome. And then the Sony Walkman, you remember those, some of you, all right? Sony Walkman, and then the Discman, which always skipped. And uh, somebody said to me between services, you forgot the 8-track. Yeah, that was before my time, but I've heard about this 8-track you speak of and shoving matches in there or something. I don't even know. But what happened? We now have personal technology. Then, of course, fast forward, you have the iPod, you have the iPhone today, you have smartphones, and now everyone's got music in his pocket, her pocket, and it, we tend to go listen to it. I don't want your music, mom and dad. That's lame. I got my music, right? So now everything's changed. Or TV is another example. There was a day when the theater was all that there was. You had to go to the theater to see something. Then families got a television, one big television in the room, and people would huddle around, and they'd watch that one television. They'd fight over the remote, and they'd fight over what you were watching, and, and down the line, all the way until the smartphone today when everyone's got te- television for themselves. The reality is this, technology has become so personal that it has become pervasive. It is everywhere. And if we're not careful, it's going to destroy our lives. Think about it. The way that technology is today, it is segmented us, segmenting us. It is changing us. You might say that we're digitally drowning. I'm going to say this, it might seem bold, but... I believe that technology is so abused that we need to take a step back, we need to sober up, and we need to reevaluate everything. So consider this an intervention today, all right? Am I overreacting? Is this, this, you know, is it really that bad? I don't believe I'm overreacting, but let's look at Mark chapter 12 to set the stage. So if you take your Bibles, you turn to Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, we're going to see something fundamental to what it means to be human 
So in the New Testament, you have the first book, Matthew, then the second book, Mark. So find the second book of the Bible, uh, second book of the New Testament, Mark. Find the big number 12, that's chapter 12, and then find the little number 28. We're going to be there. And here Jesus is speaking and he's teaching and then a religious leader comes up and asks him a question. And notice what happens here. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31. Here's what God's word says. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So just like the creation mandate, which was given to Adam and Eve, fundamental to what it means to be a human. Here we have what's called a great commandment. And again, something that is fundamental to what it means to be human. When Jesus is asked, Jesus, what is most important? What is the most important commandment? When you boil it all down, what does God require of us as human beings? He gives us two imperatives. He says, love God, love others. This is what it's all about. This is what life is all about. This is what a vibrant life is all about. It was true in the garden and it is true today in the city or in the suburb. Love God with all of my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, and then love one another as I love myself. I submit to you this morning that personal technology is hurting our ability to do both of those. That's the main takeaway this morning, that personal technology is hurting our ability to love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. This tsunami of technology that we're drowning in is dampening our love for God. It's dampening our love for our fellow man. And I would be so bold to say that it is threatening our humanity, threatening the way that we were created to be as people. And before I go any further, I want to make two disclaimers, okay? Two disclaimers. Number one, I love technology. I'm an early adopter. I'm an Android enthusiast. I used to like hack my Android phone and all kinds of stuff. Okay, I follow tech news. I especially love when technology and ministry collide and the fusion of you know, doing the work of the Lord with technology. I love it. Number two disclaimer, I'm a hypocrite sometimes. <laughs> Ask my kids. I have a long way to go in curbing this technology problem, Okay. But nevertheless, let's push forward. I want us to see this dilemma and look at two pitfalls of personal technology. Okay, two pitfalls of personal technology. And as we go, we're going to be trying to look at this text and say, okay, how does it compare to what we're called to be as humans? First is addiction. Addiction. You know the feeling, okay? You get on a trip and you unzip your bag and all of a sudden you realize, I forgot my phone charger. Oh no. Or it's worse, you're the only non-iPhone user, and you're like, I can't even use anyone's charger. Panic. Addiction. Or how about the discomfort you feel? You're in a long line and you realize, I didn't bring my phone with me. What am I supposed to do while I'm waiting for my coffee at Starbucks for 10 minutes? Uh, okay, it's really awkward. Scientists tell us that every time our phone pings, there is a biological response that's happening in our brain, a shot of dopamine 
because we know that that notification means something. Maybe it's a like, maybe it's a friend request, maybe it's a text, who knows, right? But the addiction is real, the struggle is real. I've taken teens on many mission trips throughout the years, and uh, all the way starting back in 1998 when not a single kid had a cell phone, okay? Till when I finally finished youth ministry, every kid had a smartphone. Every single child had a smartphone. And I have seen young adults, I've seen teens, I've seen children go through withdrawal. I've seen them complaining, whining, anger. And then, in almost every case, relief. Because somebody finally forced them to take a break and rest. Unlike most addictions, this is an acceptable addiction. We kind of joke about it. You know, and you're not really shamed for having the latest smartphone. If anything, you're shamed for not being up with the times. Anyone got a flip phone? You know what I'm talking about, okay? This is also a welcomed addiction. No one forces you or I to spend an hour scrolling through cat memes or discovering what the fox says. No one, we do that to ourselves. We waste so much time on drivel when you think about it. Conan O'Brien, the comedian, has joked that in the year 3000, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook will merge to form one giant time-wasting website called YouTwitface, <laughs> which is hilarious, except it's not. Because if we think about what Pastor Steve shared a few weeks ago and the quote from John Piper, John Piper said this, listen to this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Ouch, <laughs> so convicting, right? I mean, I think about the time I spend and could have prayed more for sure. This addiction is nothing less than idolatry. Look at verse 29 of our text. Verse 29 says, Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, only one God. Here Jesus is quoting word for word. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6, feel free if you want to kind of keep a finger between Deuteronomy 6 and here. I'm not going to read from there, but if you go back to Deuteronomy 6, Jesus is quoting word for word what he says in Deuteronomy 6. There is one God. There are no others. This God deserves all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And anything less than that is idolatry that's popping up. In that scripture in Deuteronomy 6, when God says, the Lord your God is one, he then says, hear, O Israel. And that passage was so fundamental to Israel, Israel society, to Israeli families. I encourage you later today, go check that out. And look at the context of Deuteronomy 6. It's known as the Shema. And that, if you look at Deuteronomy 5 before that, it's a rehashing of the Ten Commandments. Remember the first two Ten Commandments? Have no other gods before me. Do not make any graven images. And then if you read Deuteronomy 6 and the end of Deuteronomy 6 into 7, we're talking about the context of idolatry. Do not give yourself to the idols, the gods of the nations around you. We're talking about loving God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, loving our neighbor as ourself. This is connected to worship, to idolatry. And the idolatry of personal tech takes many forms. So I'm going to give you a couple examples of how I think that our idolatry when it comes to personal tech rears its head. One would be autonomy. 
I don't think these are up here, so if you want to scribble them down, feel free. But autonomy, the idol of independence. Pride, really. I love the fact that on this device, I have Google Maps, and I don't ever have to stop and ask for directions. Ever. Okay? Until I lose a signal completely in the middle of the woods and I'm panicking, but I'm not going to stop. I'll just keep driving until I get service. And the wife is, you know, hey, just ask somebody. Oh, I got it right here, right? Or our kids. Our kids don't even need to ask us parents any questions anymore. They got Google. They got Siri. They got Alexa. They have all kinds of options. Mom and dad don't know anything anyway. The power that we have in our pockets here, it's puffing up our pride. I don't need other people. I don't even know if I need God. But autonomy is a fallacy when you think about it. It's a fallacy. There is only one God. I'm not him. Google is not God. Apple is not God. There is only one God. And sometimes it just takes a power outage or really poor Wi-Fi connection or a broken cell phone to realize I'm not as autonomous as I thought that I was. So sometimes it's autonomy. That's my idolatry rearing its head. Other times, narcissism, right? the idol of self. How much of what we do with our personal tech is about us, self-focused? Our social media is a breeding ground for self-promotion and self-loathing. Right? You want people to know about you, but you also read through things and think, oh, my life's terrible. Oh, man. It is so self-focused. And if we're honest, that's true. Here's another one. I thought about this a little bit this week. We like to engineer our social interaction. We like to choose who we spend time with, when we spend time with. That's why when you send somebody a text and they call you back, you're like, what are you doing? I texted you. I didn't call you. If I wanted to call you, I would have called you. Don't you know the protocol? We like to control how we interact with people. Or you've seen all the, the teens, sometimes adults, but you've seen them all in a circle and they're all on their phones right? And they're, they're, they're right there with other people, but they're on their phone. Because what they're doing is they're saying, this is kind of awkward, and I don't really want to talk to you, and so this, I'm going to kind of section you off and limit my interaction with you. Tony Rinke made this profound statement, and I, I, th- I think this is really, really good. Listen to this. I'll read it twice. The smartphone is causing a social reversal, the desire to be alone in public and never alone in seclusion. Again, the desire to be alone in public and never alone in seclusion. Meaning, when I'm with other people, when I should be interacting, loving one another as God has called me to do, it's like, "Ah, I'm not really comfortable with this, and I'm going to remove myself from you. I want to be alone. But then, when I actually have alone time, I actually have solace, some quiet, I don't want to be alone. I don't want to think about all the things I love. I want to fill myself with all of the information and communicate and be on social networks and all of that. It's pretty selfish when you think about it, isn't it? It's a reversal of what God designed it to be. When I'm alone and I have private time, I'm supposed to have some respite. And when I'm with other people, I'm supposed to be enjoying one another and all the awkwardness that's included with that. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this is tough to do when our face is glued to our tech, right? noticing other people and their needs. So sometimes it's autonomy and sometimes it's narcissism. How about this one, the idol of secret sin, or we could say the idol of sensuality. This might be the scariest of all. Our smartphones are portals. They're portals to places of enrichment, 
and places of degradation. And so many times it's the sensual that attracts us, that grabs our attention. We want to feel something. We've been so numbed. We've been so bored by technology. We have been distracted to death. And so we feel something. And all of a sudden we find ourselves opening a Pandora's box to many sensualities that destroy pornography, illicit romances, and violent graphic things, et cetera, et cetera. We have a responsibility, parents, and even for ourselves, to protect our home, to protect our own hearts, to protect our children. You know, some of us try really hard to protect our kids, but then we hand them this yellow brick road to Sodom and Gomorrah, and we don't think necessarily about what they might, it might lead them to or what they might experience Andy Crouch gives us this scary statistic. An astonishing 62% of teenagers say they have received a nude image on their phone and 40% say they have sent one. And it's not only our kids that have a problem. Look at this quote from Tony Ranke again. Uh, This is so convicting. Just read this with me. The clicks of our fingertips reveal the dark motives of our hearts. Every sin, every double tap, and every click will be accounted for. That's sobering, right? And I've heard a quote before about, you know, integrity is who you are when no one's around, when no one's looking, right? Thankfully, Tony Rinke also says this. This is not up on the screen, but he says, before his, God's omniscient eyes, our browsing history can be washed clean only with the blood of Christ. It's a reminder that there is forgiveness, but it comes through Christ. You cannot love God supremely when you are addicted to personal technology, If you were forced to give up either your smartphone for a month or your Bible reading, which would be harder? I think for a lot of us, our smartphone would be harder to do without for a month. I mean, it's hard during the service not to know that I have that communication device. You cannot love others sacrificially when you're addicted to technology, when it's creating narcissism and this autonomy Well, that's addiction. Let's look at one other pitfall of personal technology, distraction. Distraction. Look at verse 29 with me. I want you to notice the word here. Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel. This is an important word. It's not just an auditory thing. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 6, where Jesus is quoting from, the word here is the word Shema. That's that's central to the passage. And what What God is saying is he's saying, pay attention, Israel. Take note of this. He says in that text of Deuteronomy 6, don't get distracted by all the shiny idols of your neighbors. Don't do it. Don't get distracted when I bring you into the land that I give you. Don't get distracted by all the beautiful things that I'm going to give you. Pay attention. Hear. And Jesus says in the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But we are a distracted people. A distraction isn't anything new. Obviously, people of Israel dealt with it. People in Jesus' day dealt with it. He's saying, stay focused, hear, pay attention. But we have reached new heights of distraction with this personal technological revolution. Tony Ranke interviewed David Wells. David Wells says this. He says, there is no doubt that life is more highly distracted because we get pings and beeps and text messages We are, in fact, living with a parallel virtual universe, a universe that can take all of the time that we have. What happens to us when we are in constant motion, when we are almost addicted to constant visual stimulation? What is this doing to us? This is the big 
question. And maybe this morning is the first time you've thought deeply about it in a while or ever. But I'll give you a couple areas that we're distracted as a people. And think about how this ties into our calling to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and love others as ourselves. We're distracted at work. It's hard to stay focused at work. If there are any employers here today, you would give me a hearty amen because your employees struggle to be off their phones, right, not to be distracted. That's why for me, when I prepare a sermon, I have to use an app called Pomodoro because I have to stay focused because texts and Facebook and emails and all of that, right? And so I have to be really focused. We get distracted at work. We're distracted from the natural beauty in the world around us. The first thing we pick up usually in the morning is our phones or our screens, and we're on them, and we forget about the beauty out there, the beauty that man did not engineer. Man didn't tweak that. This is just beauty. Yes, it's the beauty of Northwest Indiana, okay? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. You can take a screen, and you can go visit pretty amazing places, places you may never go, and this can start to evoke the imagination, right? But unfortunately, too, too little of the time, we actually go out there and breathe the air and experience what the three-dimensional world around us is like. And what happens is our imaginations get starved. We don't actually enjoy the beauty that God has given us. One idea I read recently is as soon as you wake up in the morning, before you grab your tablet or your phone or whatever it is that you use, um, that sounds like a drug, doesn't it? Wow, okay. You go to the door and you open the front door and you just breathe, even if it's negative two degrees, okay? You just open it for a second and be like, that's cold, okay, and close it. But what, what, what the, the author was saying was he's saying, you know what, it just helps remind me that I'm part of something bigger. I'm part of something a lot bigger than just what's going on in here. It's a good idea. We're distracted from solitude. When we do have some time, when we have some private time, some quiet time, we can't even relax, we can't even rest because we're too busy getting on a device and checking things and playing games and, and all of that stuff. And here's a big one. I want to spend a little time here. We're distracted from people. We're distracted from other people around us. We struggle to be present, to be moment, uh, to be present in the moment, right? Think about this. You've all seen people out there that should be enjoying the moment, but they are too busy, caught up recording it or on their phones. I have a picture here of a time when Johnny Depp was visiting a theater where his movie was going to be. Uh, shown. And so everyone's waiting for Johnny Depp to get out of the car. They've been waiting for hours. And at the moment that Johnny Depp starts coming down the uh, little red carpet, somebody from the Boston Globe turned their camera and took a photo of the crowd. And it's a really telling photo. It got a lot of attention for a while. But notice every single person is trying to record this event. Half of them are looking to see if they got their phone right. They're not even looking at Johnny Depp. It's beautiful or handsome or whatever he is, okay? They're they're just looking at their phones. One dude is trying to figure out why his phone is not working. That's frustrating. But then there's this older woman. You see her? Her her arms crossed right in the front. No smartphone, just taking it in. Maybe she has a Johnny Depp fascination. I don't know. But she's just there watching him and being in the moment. Where has this gone, right? Where has this just enjoying the moment gone? Jen and I kind of joke and it's a it's a half joke because we're guilty too but we, we were one time we were in Philadelphia and we saw um, there's a spot right by City Hall where people ice skate it's a beautiful little area a lot of people like to go and ice skate there kind of like Rockefeller Center in New York and we were watching all these parents try to skate backwards with their tiny child who's learning to skate and videotape it at the same time and we're like oh she's gonna bite it she is sure enough she falls the phone flies and we're like it's kind of funny 
But it's not that funny because we do similar things as parents, right? It's hard to be in the moment with our kids. We're too busy recording it, maybe for later self-promotion, or maybe just to have it for later, but we're not being present. We're not actually enjoying life as we should. If loving others is central to what we're called to be as humans, are we doing that well? Are, are we listening when people are talking or are we looking at our phone? Are we breaking out our phone at dinner? It's a very convicting thing when you think about it, and I say that to myself as well. Parents, we teach our children a lot by how we use our technology, right? We're, we're teaching them a ton by just how we're interacting with our technology. How about this, texting and driving? Yep, I went there. All right, texting and driving. There are Indiana laws about this. You may know this. If you're under 18 and you're driving, you can't use your phone at all, not even to talk on the phone. But if you're over 18, you cannot text, right? Hands-free, all of that. How well is that law working, do you think? Not that great, right? I mean, half of the people you see are on their phones, and it's not doing the job. Well, this is the thing as Christians. As Christ followers, we're called to a higher law. We're called to a higher law, and Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, when's the last time you sat at the intersection and you looked over and said, that's my neighbor? That's my weird neighbor. That's, that's another neighbor. And, and you just, as you're driving down the road 60 miles an hour, you're thinking, I'm driving around my neighbors. That's the only kind of law that can transform the way we act when we think about the fact that I'm supposed to love my neighbors. And God forbid that I would ever get into an accident and hurt somebody and I would regret it for life and all of that, right? Well, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. We are distracted from eternity. We're distracted about thinking about the eternal. We don't give much thought to what's going to happen after this life because we're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we're so caught up in the temporal and the things that attract us for the moment that we don't spend the time thinking about eternity. Now here's one, we're distracted from the beauty of Christ. We're distracted from interacting with the God who made us and seeing the beauty of Christ. Think about this Bible that I hold in my hands. This is a book that God has given us, the, the words of God. And the primary means in which God has relayed information to us, revelation to us, is this book. And we're called to read it, and we're called to deeply read it. But it's a whole lot easier to scroll through little bite-sized pieces of information, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to scroll through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever than it is to deeply read the Word of God. And so we're distracted from the beauty of Christ. Or prayer. Tim Keller was asked why young adults find it so difficult to read the Word and to pray. And this was his response. He said, noise and distraction, it is easier to tweet than to pray. And he posted that on Twitter. But that's true. It's a lot easier to be caught up in that kind of information than it is to deeply read the word and to spend time with God in prayer. So what are we going to do about this? Okay, we've had this intervention. We're addicted. We're distracted. That's great. What do we do? What is the solution? And I will tell you that the tech giants have solutions for us. And it always involves buying more technology. I think about the smartwatch when it was developed, and I've had a couple myself, so preaching to the choir, but the smartwatch was developed, and when Apple unveiled it, the, there was a, a man who was responsible for this, and he actually, he pitched it this way. Kevin Lynch was like, hey, phones are taking over our lives. They're, we're so distracted by them. We're consumed with them. We give you another device that lets you put your phone away. So now you have to have a phone in your wrist and a phone in your pocket, and, and you have to charge all those devices. I've been there, Okay. 
Technology can sometimes help with this battle, but when is enough enough, right? When do we get to the point where we say, is, does the Bible have anything to say about this? There are some good things you can do with technology. I'll mention a couple in a minute. But we got to ask ourselves, what is the remedy? What is the true remedy? Because I hope you go out and you think about making some changes with your technology. But that will only do so much if we don't evaluate our hearts and say, what is the real motivation here? God's remedy is love. We've been talking about it. Look at the text. God's remedy is love. If the most fundamental thing we're called to as humans is to love God, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love others as we love ourselves, here's what we need to do. We need to go home, take inventory of our tech habits, and then ask ourselves, are the things that I'm doing fostering love for God? Are they fostering love for others? Sometimes this can aid in love of others, right? Sometimes it can aid in love for God, but too many times, most of the time, I'd say, it's distracting us. And it's addicting us. So we have to say, how am I doing with this basic call to be human, to love others, to love God? 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We escape the pitfalls of technology with intentional love. Intentional love. This is going to require intentionality because it is not happening all by itself, is it? We are spiraling further down the technological rabbit hole. And Apple and Google would love to to help construct the culture of our homes. They would love to do that. But we have to take the reins as parents. We have to take the reins as people ourselves and say, no, we're going to be in control of our devices. It's not going to become WALL-E. Like, we are going to be humans as God intended us to be. Two books that would help you in this endeavor. If you're hearing this this morning going, okay, yeah, I see the problem. What do I do about it? Great books. And I haven't given, I'm not giving you a ton of things because I believe if you're serious about this, you will find these things out. Read this book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You by Tony Rinke. Great book. Really a lot of things that benefited me as I was preparing for this sermon. So take a look at that. And then also the TechWise family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in its Proper Place, particularly if you have kids. A great book to be able to figure out, well, what do I do? What kind of things do I use? These will help establish a culture in our home because it's not going to happen accidentally. We all know what happens when we do nothing, right? Teens and children, they become zombies. We've seen it. Matter of fact, we, some, some, some of us, we're not digital natives. We didn't grow up with technology our whole lives. We didn't grow up with the internet. I'm one of those people. And we don't know what to do with it when we get it. We're like, oh my goodness. And then we, we get so consumed with it. So I want to give you a couple of things. Ways to be intentional. I believe these are up here, but few things and then we're done. Intentional protection, number one. Intentional protection. If you're going through that whole debate of do I get my kid a smartphone, do I not? It's a really tough thing. I just say to you, think about it. Pray about it. It's, a, it's an important decision. And here, it's okay if your second or third grader is the only one without an iPhone. It's okay for them to be different. And I'm, it's, only, it's not really even a joke because most of our kids come home and say, Mom and Dad, I need an iPhone because all my friends have one. Part of loving well, part of loving your kids well is helping them understand they don't always get everything that they want. So think about that. Really protect your family. And then the devices that you do have, there's all kinds of ways that you can protect your family and yourself. Get accountability software. I can share with you later what I use. There's a lot of good ones out there. You know, share passwords with your spouse. They should know your passwords for your social media. Keep accountability with other Christians. You can buy a smart router. I have one. My kids love it. It turns the internet off at a certain time. Turns it back on in the morning. They love that thing. 
Um, you, Disney Circle, there's all kinds of things like that, okay? But take control, protect your family intentionally. intentionally. It's going to take intentionality. Intentional rhythms, so protection and then rhythms, rules and times and routines. Your kids should learn there are certain rhythms, there are certain routines that we do as a family. Technology should serve you. You shouldn't serve your technology. Andy Crouch said this, let me put it this way, you don't have to become Amish, but you probably have to become closer to Amish than you think. (laughs) Intentional rest, you need to carve out times of rest for your family you got to decide what that looks like for you. In a, in a second, there's going to be a list of things here. You could follow Andy Crouch's advice if you want, but you have to have rest. Sabbath is a biblical principle. There needs to be some rest from the distraction and from the stuff. I'll give you one example of intentionality. Look at the difference with a moment of solitude, whether it ends up being um, intentional or non-intentional. You could have isolation, and in that isolation, you could be feeding on vanity, fill in the blank, whatever it is. And that would produce in you soul-starving loneliness. Or with that same isolation, that same time, you could spend it communing with God, and in that moment, you have soul-feeding solitude. See, it takes intentionality when you have those moments. What am I going to do with my time? And then lastly, this is important, intentional relationship. Intentional relationship. Mark 12, Deuteronomy 6, it's about relationship. Relationship with God relationship with others, intentional relationship. In fact, if you study that text of Deuteronomy 6, there is a real intentionality about the family. Talk about the Lord wherever you are, when you're by the way, when you sit down, when you rise up. Look at that scripture because there's a lot of intentionality going on and it takes intentional relationships. Here I'm gonna put on the screen 10 tech-wise commitments for the family. This is in the book. They're good. Um, Some of them you may say, that's extreme, I'm not going to do that. Hey, there's some ideas, read the book for more information. But number one, Crouch says, we develop wisdom and courage together as a family. Number two, we want to create more than we consume, so we fill the center of our home with the things that reward skill and active engagement. Sounds messy to me, right? (laughs) Number three, we are designed for a rhythm of work and rest. So one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year, we turn off our devices and worship, feast, play, and rest together. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. That is extreme to most families, to my family, in fact. One hour a day, so maybe it's dinner time or whatever, everyone's devices go away. Okay, that's not too extreme. One day a a week, so the whole day, no one's on their devices, a Sabbath rest. That's getting a little more extreme. And then one week a year, a vacation where you don't have your devices, that's what he's saying might be a good a good way to go. That's for your family to decide. Number four, we wake up before our devices do, and they go to bed before we do. Now, that kind of makes sense to me because humans are in control, right? (laughs) But it's not happening all the time. Number five, we aim for no screens before double digits at school and at home. And I know for a fact that can't even happen at school today with some of the schools, but uh, it's a goal to shoot for. Number six, we use screens for a purpose and we use them together. Parents have total access to children's devices. Number seven, car time is conversation time. It's a great idea. A lot of times it's hard as parents, isn't it? Number eight, spouses have one another's passwords and parents have total access to children's devices. Very good thing, parents. And I know there's apps today with disappearing messages and all of that stuff. Number nine, we learn to sing together rather than letting recorded and amplified music take over our lives in worship. Some of you are like, you don't want to hear us sing. Like, let's let the professionals sing and we'll sing with it, whatever. But the idea is singing together, being together, engaging together. 
I think the idea is not just putting the headphones on, but engaging together. Number 10, we show up in person for the big events of life. We learn how to be human by being fully present at our moments of greatest vulnerability. We hope to die in one another's arms. For me, one thing I started to try to do this week was I live pretty close here. I walk to church and I walk back home. And so on my walk home, I started to look at my phone, make sure I respond to any last minute thing I have to, and then put my phone away, pray a short prayer, God, help me to disconnect from my technology, help me to be present with my family, and then walk into my house, go right into my bedroom, plug my phone in and leave it for an hour or two during dinner and during all that. That's a, it's been a really neat thing to try this week. Um, so you got to think about what is it going to mean for me to be intentional about my relationships. And most of all, be intentional about fostering your love for the Lord and your love for other believers. Because here's really the remedy of, for, for all of our addiction issues. The remedy is the beauty of Christ and it's his church. It's being with his people and it's worshiping Christ. This is actually the remedy. So when we spend time basking in the love that the Father has for us. When we think about the fact that Jesus loves me so much, he didn't get distracted. He focused on what God had for him. He went to the cross, and with love in his eyes, he died for me on the cross. That's the love that Jesus has for me. When we spend time meditating on that, when we spend time in God's word, our love is stoked. And the things of earth start to grow strangely dim. The cat memes, yeah, they're funny, but compared to the love that Jesus has for me, not really worth much. When we spend time with other Christians here on Sunday or in small group or women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, whatever you're doing, and we experience the messiness of relationships where we're not engineering things, we're not trying to dictate who and when I talk to people, we're just being with the body of Christ. I mean, there are people in this room that you would never hang out with otherwise, okay? The church is a diverse Beautiful thing. And relationships are messy, but that's part of the solution is being with people and being present. When we embrace people, one another, in Christian fellowship, we come alive. We become more human. When we eat and when we laugh and when we cry with flesh and blood humans, we remember, yeah, this is what I was actually created for. We're not created to view all the world through a screen. We're created to love God our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor.